0: You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 275 with guest Jeffrey Snover. Recorded Monday, July 9, 2012. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is distinguished engineer Jeffrey Snover. He's also a lead architect for the Windows Server division. And Snover is the inventor of Windows PowerShell, an object-based distributed automation engine, scripting language, and command line shell. And if you don't know what that is, where you been? Uh, Snover joined Microsoft in 1999, and it's a divisional architect for the Management and Services Division, providing technical direction across Microsoft's management technologies and products. He has 30 years of industry experience with a focus on management technologies and solutions. He was an architect in the office of the CTO at Tivoli. I remember Tivoli. And a development manager at Netview. He has also worked as a consulting engineer and development manager at DEC, where he led various systems and network management projects. Uh, Snover held eight patents prior to joining Microsoft, has registered 30 patents since. He is a frequent speaker at industry and research conferences on a variety of management and language topics. Welcome back, sir.
1: How are you doing? I'm
0: well. And I did try to catch some of your sessions at... Tech ed you were you did nothing but joint sessions this time around. I saw the uh the crash course you did with Don Jones, ah, so in Orlando, yep, which was standing room only. I might point out,
1: yeah, that was number one talk for quite a while there
0: it yeah, you killed with that. it was well no you can't know too much about PowerShell, it seems indeed,
1: yeah, this is really the kind of breakthrough year for PowerShell. you know the interesting thing was um you know, I walked through the exhibit hall and just kind of wandering, and I just kept hearing. The word PowerShell, PowerShell, PowerShell hmm. is like popcorn going off. So, you know, sort of everywhere. Yeah. And someone, one of the attendees said of all the sessions he attended, uh, every single one was showing PowerShell. Hmm. Yeah. It's almost not a topic anymore. Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, there was an argument to be said for that. Like, hey, you know, PowerShell, everybody, we don't need a beginner's course anymore. Everybody knows PowerShell. Yeah. And we said, no, nah, I think that's not right. Let's do that. And yeah. indeed, it was one of the most popular sessions of TechEd.
0: Well, but I, and I also think that gestalt that everybody's supposed to know it now is it, it on the development side. We see the same thing. If you do a basics of object orientation, you'll still pack the room uh-huh. it's just because people like to go over the fundamentals if they aren't sure. And even if they are, you know, there's always some room for that. So, I'm, I mean, and really that I try to get into the session, but it's just, you know, when you're a speaker, you really can't take up a seat for paying attendees. Right. But it, right. Was, it was something else.
1: Uh, well, the nice thing, you and everybody else can watch those sessions over on Channel 9.
0: Yeah. Every single session was recorded it's the way it should be and it, you know but it I do the TechEd 101s at uh, at TechEd and one of the oh, things yeah. I say is hey all these sessions are recorded so if it's a choice between going and talking to a vendor or catching a uh uh a chalkboard session or a birds of a feather the things that aren't recorded go do that cuz you can always watch the recorded sessions
1: Yep, you got it.
0: Uh, it's a, it's really interesting to balance your time well at TechEd and, and certainly it's a long week for me. It's, I consider it a marathon. You got to do it carefully.
1: Yes.
0: But we're not talking about PowerShell, not directly this time around. I didn't know this until uh, you and I chatted separately, but DevOps has become a,
1: important to your life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's sort of, uh, I I love DevOps, right? It was really kind of founded or it it has its distinct birth, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to say, you know, I think it was July of, uh, Two thousand and nine, John Alspaugh gave a talk at a conference called Velocity, where at the time, everyone was struggling with releasing their product every year. Uh, web services were doing it at every you know few months, and it was always a struggle and then he in the midst of all this, he stood up and said we 're doing ten deployments every day right and everyone 's head just exploded. Loaded. Like, what are you talking about? And he said, we're able to achieve this through developers and operators coming together and working together. And thus the term DevOps uh, was formed. So, pretty exciting. And then as you, as you pursue that and you take a look at it, turns out there's a bunch of people agree upon what DevOps is and then a bunch of disagreements, right? Sure. I like to say that there's DevOps, heavy emphasis on developers. And then there's DevOps, which is heavy emphasis on operators. And then there's something called no-ops. And no-ops is DevOps, where basically developers who think that there shouldn't be any operators until there's a problem. <laughs> 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 then they're like, oh, yeah, no, I really love you guys. <laughs> anyway, so there's this, there's this wide spectrum. And if you take a look at the goals of DevOps, it's really been what we've been working towards uh, with PowerShell all along. So hmm. there was this instant, oh, I know what you're talking about.
0: Well, yeah, and I I've, I've bump into a lot of folks. I spend most of my time scaling systems. So it's, and you know, you're never going to scale successfully if you don't work closely with both the developers who are building the code and the operators who actually run the code and, and make sure that it stays alive. So it's, I feel like I've been doing DevOps
1: for a long time, just didn't know that was the label. Exactly. Well, you know, sometimes that's the way things work, right? You know, a number of people uh, since DevOps have come back and said, well, that's what we do all the time. But it's very useful to have a phrase, uh, to be articulate, to be clear about what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then by having that conceptual framework, you can often improve it. So.
0: Now. How in the world for somebody, I mean, typical relationship, they, you do a build, it goes to QA, QA approves it, dev never sees it again, it goes to ops, and there's sort of that wall that it hucks over. Right. I mean, how the heck the do you wall. get from that to 10 a day?
1: another brick in the wall. Yeah. Well, well, the key thing was to realize that hey, we're all, we have a single mission here, Mm -hmm. and the mission is to have the best website in the world, and let's work together to achieve that. So it's not, you know, they want to break down this. Devs think of themselves as, well, I write features and those guys are responsible for keeping the website up, and the operator's thinking, well, geez, I just have to accept whatever they do and try and keep it up and running. It's like, no, it's higher or bid, the business matters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's do whatever it takes for the business to matter. Next is hey, let's work together to cooperate and um, and understand, hey, what things work in an operational standpoint and what things don't. You know, I remember as a young buck engineer uh, working on uh, uh, some electronics, and one of the older engineers said, yeah, it's a problem with these, um, you know, people right out of college, they specify like 27.4 ohm resistors. They don't exist. You know, hmm. you got you to learn the real world. Right. You know? And and so that's part of that is like, okay, let's have the conversation. Certain types of software are easier to deploy than others, so let's talk about that and educate that and have a back pressure so that the developers take responsibility, not just for the feature, but the actual deployment and keeping it up and running. And then, and it turns out that, that you know, all that stuff's really great. But for me, the thing that was really kind of insightful was that, the, you know, running a website like that is like riding a bicycle. Mm-hmm. You know, it turns out to be really hard to ride a bicycle slowly, right? You just keep falling over. Right. Well, sort of the same thing with running these big websites. You know, running a big website slowly is kind of hard, right? Because here's the deal. Okay, so let's say I, I do a release every uh, quarter, okay? Now, I release it and something's wrong. What, what went wrong? And the answer is, well, something in the last quarter's worth of development. Right. It doesn't really narrow it down very much. On the other hand, imagine, now conceptually, take it to its logical extreme, every time a developer makes a change, you deploy it, okay? Now, you, you would never do that, but imagine you did. Mm-hmm. Now, if something goes wrong, you know exactly what to undo.
0: Well, in the dev world, this is continuous integration taken to an extreme, that it actually goes all the way to the user.
1: And so that's basically the idea is, hey, let's have small changes. Let's do them quickly. Uh, let's accept the fact that, indeed, there will be mistakes made. Let's put together a system to deal with those mistakes, to be able to back out things and, and continue to move forward. And through this model you know, of heavy emphasis on automation and speed and speed through automation, uh, they're able to achieve great uh, speed, agility, and, and ultimately robustness. All right, I the
0: 10 a day thing still terrifies me. Let's talk through a model that looks like 1 a day. Sure. Okay, cuz I think I can I can almost because the quarter seems more natural or the 6 week block. I mean, now you start talking the the dev guys talks about the agile practice where we go through a sprint. And then it spends some time in QA before it goes to 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 operations. I'm just trying to imagine how I get from you modified the code in the morning. It got deployed and we detected the problem that afternoon.
1: Yeah. So basically each one of these guys has a different path. And this is where some of the variation starts to happen in the, in, in, in the community. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the first and most important thing is that when you do it every quarter, it can sometimes be viewed as like a set of one-offs. Right. Like, okay. Well, this release, we're going to do it this way. And then this. And, and when you're saying I'm going to do it every single day, what that means is you have to immediately focus in on processes, tooling, et cetera. And that's really the higher order bit. Like, okay, what, what is it that's gonna happen when a developer you know, releases something? Uh, what is the process by which we push it? How am I actually gonna know whether it's good? Okay, so we just push this, so you got a nice fast speed between check-in and, uh, and deployment. How am I gonna know, I know something's gonna go wrong. Mm-hmm. So how will I detect that? Oh, well, you know what, you have to have a heavy emphasis on test and monitoring. Okay, And so you basically, that's the whole point, is you set up automation, you set up monitoring, you set up tests, and you set up processes to be able to determine when things are good and when they're bad and who's going to do what when things are bad. So uh, I heard about one great uh, uh, customer, or sorry, one great uh, website, and what they did was they would have, when they interviewed people, they would say, okay, um, here's a computer, uh, write some feature enhancement to the website, and as soon as they were done, like in the interview process, they pushed that feature to the live website. <laughs> Talking about like, stressing
0: out an interview,
1: exactly. I mean, just people's heads exploded. And the nice thing is, they were, they use that as like a selling, a recruiting feature. It's like, hey, you know, we move fast here, and and things happen fast. Right now, that also was a place that had very they they paid particular attention to testing and monitoring. And literally, they had these big red lights, you know, like you know, fire lights in, in, in the hallway. And when something went wrong, that fire light would go on, everybody would stop what they were doing, and then go and get that problem addressed. So everybody's got a, a slightly different approach to how to get there. And some, some of the numbers are really quite large. Yeah, how do you know that something went wrong? Yeah. Um, so ultimately, you, you want to you, we should always start with that, right? right? Have a clear notion of what good looks like, yeah, and and then be able to test it. And often, what you find, and by the way, we're doing this, right? We find that that as we now run Windows in these very large websites, mm-hmm. you know, Bing, Azure, et cetera, Hotmail, Exchange, Office three sixty five that we have to have a clearer notion of what success looks like and, and what it doesn't, and to be able to define that and then look for it. Okay. So you want to be able to say, Hey, success looks like I should always be able to do these things. And if I can't, then something went wrong. Right. So, and, and clearly, tell you, my, you missed that. You missed the session. So you didn't hear my joke. No I didn't a joke. It's a real story. So what happened was, um, you know, the, when my brother was a little kid right he falls in the tub hurts his arm mm-hmm. and you know maybe broke it so my folks touch his arm he screams like oh no, this is bad and, uh, and so they bring him to the emergency room and they take a bunch of x-rays and they look fine so the doctor's like Stephen I think you're fine and he's like screams every time it Touches the arm. So he's like, okay, well, maybe there's some funky break. So they go and they take another set of x rays at a different angle. And he's looking at the arm, looking at this. Everything looks fine. So he asked my brother, he says, well, how high can you lift your arm? And he barely moves it up a little bit. And he says, only this far. He says, no, that's that's not good. Before you fell, how high could you lift your arm? And my brother says, oh, all the way up here. And he puts it all the way up. And the point of that story, true story, point of that story is that is that bad states are deviations from good states. Right. So you want to be very crisp about what a good state is and then look for that good state. And if you don't see it, then you're in a bad state and you want to then migrate your way towards a good state.
0: Right. And then good state is the only thing that's actually known. You know what good looks like and anything that isn't that is bad. Exactly. You know, this also backs into a problem I've been having for the past while around websites which is that none of my load tests are good enough yeah you know when you're doing this quarterly deployment the big question mark is is this going to survive the new wave of customers that's going to hit it with the new set of features and so forth and we always sort of said same thing it's like it can't be any slower than the last version But every new feature you add didn't have a last version to measure against. So we always struggle with that. And I could do A B testing. I could create loads so that I can compare one version of the app to the other version of the app, but I cannot create the load. It looks exactly like what the users will do that weekend.
1: Right. Well, in fact, this is, this is where it begins to get interesting. This is where, where I'm so excited about the DevOps. Effort and community is there's all sorts of really creative thinking about these things. As mm-hmm. you mentioned, A/B testing. So not everybody's familiar with that, but one of the ideas is, hey, how do you make so many changes? And and one of the answers is, well, you don't deploy a change to the entire website. Right. What you do is you 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 have a front end like dispatcher, and you deploy the change to a certain area, and not to the others. And uh, you know some percentage of your traffic you vector to those. Machines, and then you just monitor well, hey, are people doing what they used to do with the other site mm-hmm. you know because often it's hard to tell you know what success and what's what a good state is and what a bad state isn't, but if you see people who average you know on average spend you know three minutes at your website introduce a change and on average they're spending you know thirty seconds on your website well, that's a big change and and maybe the change was meant to get people off your website in which case. Rousing success, right? If the change was meant to keep them out your website, you got a failure. Yeah, not so, so much. You ba- yeah, so you back that off, and that's called A/B testing. Mm-hmm. And then there are other things, and as you say, you know, how, how, how do you do the load testing? One of the things I just read this weekend uh, was about hey, complex failures. That it's no longer a case of of saying hey, um, something succeeds and something fails. That often now we're designing these systems with rich backoff capabilities, right? So what'll happen is as they detect an overload in the system, they'll give you a degraded experience. Mm-hmm. So for instance. If you go to Facebook and they're overloaded, well, you know, you just don't see everything that you used to see. Right. Uh, or you don't get as rich a set of results. And, and in general, you don't notice that. Right. And so then the point is, well, geez, if it degrades so far, at what point do you declare it broken? Right. Right. Like, you know. And but, so, I mean, I would think I'd
0: want to be notified the moment you've degraded it at all. But you're, the nice thing there is you've got a problem, but you're still up. Right. I've I've stepped into a weaker mode. I just wanted you to know, you know, what matters here is the trend. Are we going to get weaker still? Yep. So you just anticipating that. But, you know, a, you said a lot of things there, Jeff. So let me back you up a couple of steps. One is this idea of rolling out individual packages to individual machines, which also presumes I can roll back pretty quickly. Yes. So, I mean, that... Uh, I can't tell you how many places I've been where once you deploy a version, it's pretty much a one-way trip.
1: Well, in fact, some people, this is one of the the, uh, two approaches in the DevOps community. Some people say, hey, look, I have to be able to, um, uh, you know, Whatever I deploy, Mm -hmm. I need to be able to deploy anywhere. So in an A-B test, I deploy the new stuff in the B section, and if it turns out to be good, then I make everything be a B, Mm -hmm. and everything's happy. If it turns out to be a bad change, then what I need to do is I need to deploy A back to those machines that had B on them. Right. So pretty simple. Now, other people say, no, 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 that's the wrong model. Always forward. And so what they say is A-B testing... If I put something on B and it's wrong, right? It has a negative effect, you don't go back to a, you quickly fix it and go to C. right. If you're doing 10 deployments a day, you have no time for rollbacks. There's
0: another deployment coming. heck, you might even get you might even get the fix into C. you might get it into D. Yeah, exactly. you know it's that kind of pay just the time it takes to identify the problem, write the bug report and push it back to to dev to get the fix done. You know, that's going to happen so quickly if we're going to get to that kind of cadence. But even in a daily cadence, one could make the argument, do I need to roll back or should I just wait for the next version?
1: Yep. Yep. And so there were all that's what I find so exciting. There were all these conversations going on. And the other thing I find exciting is a lot of these conversations bring us back to the quality revolution Mm -hmm. of the uh late 80s, or I guess the, the 1980s and early 90s, right? Uh, if you remember this, if you, you know, we've got listeners who are old enough to remember this, but back in the 70s, the average quality of products, services, et cetera, was pretty crappy. Right. I mean, there were stories about people finding beer cans in their car, You know, with, you know, workers, you know.
0: Drinking Left beer on the
1: line and putting it in the car. And you know, the average number of defects per car was like 20. I mean, just crazy things. So there's just bad, 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 bad quality. And the Japanese actually, you know, taking the initiative from, from a set of American quality engineers, uh, went and embraced quality as a core value Mm -hmm. of all their manufacturing, and just basically transformed the world with that. Well, they transformed the majority of the world, but not really IT. Right. (laughs) And so now what's so exciting is, we're now taking some of those quality principles and applying them to IT. So in a blog I recently did, I likened this notion of DevOps to the Taguchi quality method. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Taguchi quality method, basically he dealt with this issues of, of like poor quality and transmissions. Okay. And what he said was, Hey, instead of trying to make sure you always get the transmission in a particular location, you know, centered, he said, don't worry about that. First focus in on making it wherever you put it, make it consistent. Okay, so that it's consistently somewhere. And then, if need be, we can redesign the rest of the car around that consistency. Mm-hmm. Okay, So the point was that variation was the number one enemy to quality. And so the idea is you make something consistent, so it's completely repeatable, read automation. Right. So you have a completely repeatable process. Then what that allows you to do is to make a change in that process and measure the result. If the result is an improvement, you keep the change. And if the result is a bad thing, you get rid of the change. And this process then allows you to step by step by step, incrementally and always improving your, the quality of your, of your process. And so that's where automation is important. That's why your repeatability is important, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. And now you're walking me nicely into why we want PowerShell involved in DevOps. Exactly. <laughs> because without, you know, the other thing is funny is you suddenly reminded me of the old CMMI mantra. Even ITIL addresses this idea. First, consistency. Then worry about how the quality. Because if yep. you can't get consistent, even consistent poor quality is better than inconsistent high quality. Exactly. Cause then you can fix it. Yeah. Until you can get consistency, nothing else matters. So yep. automation is not optional. Automate exactly. first, then tune to
1: quality. Right, and there's always a room, so some people are on this page as says, "Oh well, geez, I'm just going to automate, have lights out. I was thinking about doing a new blog on this because mm-hmm. you know often there's this term lights out automation i'll honestly, I'll be one of the first to admit that often I use that term, but that's really not it. I think I was thinking I would, I'd have a blog about lights on automation, hmm. right lights on management, and the point is automation is not to go and and you know achieve a world where everybody's, you know, finally we got it fixed, now get rid of everybody and just, you know, turn off all the lights. That's never going to happen. There's uh, In fact, even when you have a high quality environment, you still have people that are actively monitoring, actively using judgment, actively, you know, investigating things. uh, And that's what I meant by lights on. But You can clarify, you know, none of the problems are in the way. Mm -hmm. None of the minutiae is in the way. They've cleared everything and you can focus in on the problem. You don't know if I told you this story once, but, you know, out of college, I had a roommate who used to be a Navy SEAL in Vietnam. And apparently the Navy SEALs get any weapons that they like. And so, like, okay. And he described this gun. I never really quite got it in focus, but it was effectively like a machine gun shotgun. Hmm. And he said, well, this is very useful in the jungle because he says, basically, you sort of just had to know, are they sort of over here or sort of over there? And he said, you'd line up with that thing, and you'd let it go, and in three seconds, one or two situations was the, pro- the case. Either your problem was gone where everything between you and your problem was gone, and you could focus in on your problem. <laughs> well, well, you see, that's what I sort of think of by this lights on, right. lights on uh, management, which is to say, hey, through automation, I can clear up everything between me and the problem, and I get to focus in on the problem. Right. And have one, a very high quality, challenging job, but it's also then a very high value job. Right. That I'm not just dealing with Mm minutiae. I'm adding real value to the company and you get rewarded appropriately.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a great question I ask IT folks all the time is like, do you know how this company actually makes money? Like because rarely are we the ones making money for the company. We support people, hopefully, that make money for the company or we maybe we're two orders removed but we're all usually at least one order removed and if you don't know how the company makes money you're very replaceable. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, but I think the other interesting part about this is is you know you don't turn the lights off because stuff's still changing. You're still shipping new versions. The number of users is varying like you presumably the company's still moving forward and the stuff that needs to be looked at. If everything was static, if everything stayed the same day after day, if every day was identical, then there isn't a lot to do. But it
1: isn't that way, exactly, and that's why lights out management is really you know associated with like autom automotives, mm-hmm. right? Cars, where you know you do figure out how to make a car, and then you make that car every single day, you know, like without variation. And that's not the way IT is, no. <laughs> you know, so that's why I think this lights out is actually a bad term, and that lights on is a better one, right? Eliminate all the cruft, and then your lights get turned on.
0: I mean, even. In cars, you maybe can get away with that for a few months. But if you're not making a new car next year, you're done. Right. We can't hold still. Nobody expects that. And, you you know, you opened this with the best statement of all, 10 builds a day. Well, that means obviously there's stuff that needs to be shipped, that stuff that needs to be changed. What are you doing in those 10 builds a day? Something changes every time.
1: Well, you know what? That's what I thought was so marvelous, what I enjoyed the most out of John Allspar's talk, was basically the logic. He said he said it this way. He says, businesses require change. Internet businesses require rapid change. And yet change is the number one cause of sight down. Right. And so you have only two choices. The traditional IT approach, which is to say, hey, I want to minimize change right? I'm only going to change four times a year, and I'm going to spend all my effort to make sure that that change is a good change. And he says, the other is to make change safe through changes in tools and processes and culture. And that's that DevOps mm-hmm. go very, very fast. And so that's uh, just brilliant thinking.
0: Rapidly to read, but I also feel like a whole lot of stuff gets simpler. Uh, certainly, and I keep throwing my dev hat on here in the IT show. But, you know, we got into continuous integration because the sooner you took your code out for a spin, the sooner you found the mistakes. Right. And so the same has got to apply on the operation side. The sooner we get that code in front of the customer, the sooner we find out whether it works or not, really. I mean, you could test till you're blue in the face, but the longer you stay away from actually putting that code to work, you know, we talk about forking blocks of code. So we saw a group of developers goes off on their own version of this code and they don't come back for three months, the chances of them being successful is incredibly low. But if they go away for a few hours and come back right away, they're much more likely to be
1: successful. Right. Ultimately, there's this big theme that I, I like, which is, you know, uh, an encounter with reality. There's one mm-hmm. great book called Execution. And in it, he basically made the point that, hey, you know, vision is cheap. What matters is execution. Sure. And then uh, he says, as executives, you know, you look out there and, and you got some people who think we should do A and people think we should do B, et cetera. He says, your job as a leader and an executive is to engineer an encounter with reality and then you know, respond appropriately, which is to say, Hey, you got all these people, how are you going to pick? Right. And one is to say, well, this guy has the best credentials or this guy has the best uh, background or track record or whatever. The other, the most important thing is to do something, you know, engineer an encounter with reality and find out that way. Mm -hmm. I think I just heard that a a podcast this morning, talk about Deng Xiaoping, which you basically said, you know, uh, extract truth from facts, Right. And this apparently got him in big trouble because, you know, you're supposed to be ideologically driven. Right. But he was like, no, no, no. You know, whether whether the, who cares whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. So you take a look at the facts and from the facts, extract the truth. Mm-hmm. So say, all different variations on the same thing. Have an encounter with reality. Get your code out there. People like it. People don't. It works. It doesn't. You know, and that's more important than, you know, I think a or I think B. I also feel like the feedback mechanisms we have for ops going back to
0: dev tend to be weak. Yep. Uh, just how many ops guys know how to file a proper bug report? Mm. Even know where it is. Like just that mechanism, because to me it feels like it needs to be a feedback loop. Like that they, they, you need to be able to express effectively back to developers what happened in operations.
1: Well, and that uh, there's enough information with detailed information Mm -hmm. uh, to do that. So this is one of the things we've learned with, uh, you know, again, running these very large websites is the importance of very detailed logging information. And so if you take a look at Windows Server 2012, Mm -hmm. here's the thing about Windows Server 2012. You know, I sort of love it, and I'm also sort of like frustrated, right? I love it because there are so many amazing features that we get to talk about, and I'm kind of frustrated because... There are so many amazing features I get to talk about, which is <laughs> to say that there are so many high-level, you know, just knock it the ball out of the park features to talk about. That there's very little room to talk about some of the other things that are just equally amazing, but not as like sexy and and uh, you know off the. You know, you're not going to put in a brochure. Yeah. And so one of them is just, you know, just the extensive use of logging in the system. I mean, we got really good at, at, at logging and plumbing things through correlation IDs, right? Mm-hmm. So as something does something, you put a correlation ID there, and so then you can trace it. And we've even updated our protocols with these correlation IDs, like in management. You know, so you can trace a, a request through the stack, across the wire and up the other stack. And this is a long process, right? This is going to take us a while to get, you know, great at this everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but for instance, uh, you're being able to transfer that correlation ID. How do you do that? And the typical answer is, well, the caller just reaches into the environment. Like you put this correlation ID on a thread, and then the caller grabs it from the thread local storage and uses it. Okay, well it turns out that that doesn't work everywhere. And in particular, in the kernel, we do a lot of things where a caller will do something and enqueue a data structure, and then somewhere else in the kernel, someone will grab that data structure and act upon it. So there's no common thread, et cetera. The only shared context is the data structure. And so in fact, in 2012, What we do is we update that data structure and we plumb the correlation ID through the data structure. Hmm. And so when we pick it up elsewhere, we grab it from there and continue to use it. So there's just a ton of things like that. And why am I talking about it here? The answer is that those correlation IDs give the developers unprecedented Look behind the curtains yeah. as to what's truly happening in the system. Again, that kind of lights on management, uh, so that they can understand what's going on. The other thing I'm passionate about is teaching people. You know, again, lifting the curtains. You know, you know, lifting up the, uh, you know, moving the curtains away mm-hmm. and letting people see how things really worked. We recently uh, published the high-level architecture for the PowerShell workflow integration. Now, lots of people have gone and and taken PowerShell and workflow and put it together. And, you know, they spend a week doing that. And and this is not that. (laughs) (laughs) This is very big investment in a scalable uh, implementation of the integration of these technologies. And I felt it was very important that people understand how we integrated them and how the architecture works so that if and when something goes wrong, they have a cognitive model to work against to make hypotheses as to what went wrong and then what they should do about it. And so you'll see more and more of things like that happening.
0: And is this going to manifest? How often do we get a critical event in an event log and you just don't know the chain? So I get that this is the end game. I've got this ending of error messages. But how did I get here? And it's fairly challenging to follow that path through to
1: say, this is the starting problem that has resulted in this failure. Exactly correct. And that's the things, those are the sort of things that we work on. And those, unfortunately, are not things that we talk about in the brochure. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing is, you get the product, you use it, you spend some time investigating and sniffing around, and you are just going to be delighted by what's there.
0: Uh, Where do you stand on stuff like System Center? Like how vital do you think Opsman is to this whole tool chain of doing serious DevOps on the Microsoft world?
1: Yeah, so, uh, Opsman has some very cool technology, uh, in this whole DevOps area. In particular, the, the ability to, you know, uh, automatically instrument your code. Mm-hmm and see where things are being, you know, where time is being spent. And that's brilliant work. And then there's also this outside-in monitoring. You know, if you go, if you put the Wayback Machine, mm-hmm. uh, Opsman used to be, you know, kind of like, I, I'm going to go put monitors on the server and see whether some server, you know, service is up or down. Yep. And if the service is down, I'll try and restart it. And if I can't restart it, I'll have a flag, okay? Now, that's still very, very super useful stuff. But really sort of useful more in the in the context of say an enterprise application. In the context of a of a web application, the outside in is far more interesting. And so they have these things that say, hey, I want to be able to monitor from the outside um this uh, uh your service point, And I'm going to tell you from a customer's perspective, is your website up and running or not?
0: This gets and more then, into the idea of a service level agreement, right? A good service level agreement says, hey, not only will this service be running, but you could expect the average response time to be sub-second, you know, those sorts of numbers. And they only make sense to test that externally.
1: Exactly. Because, you know, at the end of the day, who cares whether the server is up or down if the customers can't reach it? Yeah. That's what matters.
0: Yeah. Well, the the developer, it works fine on my machine answer is never the correct answer. It's how it works on the customer's machine.
1: Right. And so, again, now we come back to that theme of uh, this transition from a kind of developer-oriented view to an operations point of view or Mm -hmm. a merger. So instead of just saying, well, hey, you know, my service is up and running. I'm happy. if, If you can't access it, that's not my problem. Right. To a shift in the product saying, hey, we're going to pay attention to both that and the customer experience, the operator experience. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, are people actually able to use the service? And if not, let's let's alert on that.
0: And I don't want to necessarily stick on this idea that it's an ops-centric world per se, because if we don't ship new features, we're not thriving either. Absolutely. So the, the two kind of got to go together. Yep. Well, Jeff, the half hour's flown by. Uh, Any final words? Where should people be looking for more information about DevOps?
1: Yeah, so there's lots of stuff out there on, on DevOps. You know, if you just search, you'll find a bunch of stuff. Um, but honestly, what I would do is, uh, I think the big story is Windows Server 2012. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, is there an amazing set of stuff there? And concretely, that you know, there's a bunch of stuff in it that help people implement DevOps. So unprecedented level of automation. You know, we previous version we had about a 230 commandlets. This version we've got over 2,400 commandlets. Wow. We've integrated the workflow engine, as I mentioned, into PowerShell, so you can do massive multi-machine automation, um, and again, lots of, of diagnostics and, and uh, event logs. So, indeed, this is a, you know it is an awesome release. You know, you, people out there have probably been reading about the press, et cetera. Uh, if you're not a TAP customer, you should go talk to some of those people because it's not all hype. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people are actually deploying this and uh, yielding fantastic results. So. And, and Server
0: 2012 is imminent. You know, by the time this show is published, it'll probably be out or nearly out. It's not that far away. So Well,
1: indeed, today we, uh, we announced when it would be available.
0: Yeah, first week of August, and this published uh, August 1st, so we're right there. It should be now.
1: Yay, everyone should be celebrating. Yeah,
0: if you've got your uh, your your license agreement, so you can go grab a copy, because obviously RTM does not mean it's you know printed on DVDs. It's just available on MSDN. Go get it. Jeffrey Snover, thanks so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.